So the big question is this, are you tired of the hustle and grind of fix and flip? Do you really think you can wholesale your way to success? What you really want is a cash flowing portfolio that lets you live a life of freedom, sunsets and palm trees on your terms. But what if you're stuck because you have no capital, no time and no idea where to start? That ends now. Your host, Corey Peterson, is a rags-to-riches real estate millionaire who started out with no money or credit and quickly grew a portfolio of cash-flowing apartments. Not to mention, he did it all with other people's money. You're only one deal away from creating the cash flow life, and the Multifamily Legacy Podcast will show you how. So now, here's your host, the big kahuna, Corey Peterson. Hey everybody, welcome to the Multifamily Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peterson, and we have a wonderful show. I'm all the way back into my my favorite happy spot here in Kauai, the Garden Island of Hawaii. And um, I'm here with my neighbors. We're having a great time. We've we've done and seen almost everything the island has to offer. And we're just having a wonderful time. And so, you know work hard but also uh play hard as well so we're actually going to make this a three-part series called the university crossings case studies and this is going to be part one what i'm going to do is i'm going to break down um detail wise everything that happened with uh my i did two deals ago i did a a deal called university crossings and i really just want to unpack that thing so you guys can really um, see the inner workings of things that happened well, things that didn't happen so well, things that went wrong, um, and how we overcame all the things that uh, that I think is probably typical in a multifamily transaction. And so, uh, you know, hold on, strap yourself in, and pay attention because this is actually going to be a really neat series to really to give you a, a, a mind uh, opening view of really what happens in deals. Because trust me it's not always sunsets and palm trees. Things most often not don't go perfect, um, and, but they usually go to close, right? So we drive these properties to close, but that's not with a little couple bumps along the way. So, um, so anyways, so University Cross, oh wait, before we do that, I want to make sure I give a shout out for iTunes reviews. So uh, Laura Wells comes uh, and says, This podcast is for anyone who wants to shorten their learning curve and investing and prevent mistakes along the way. Entertaining, too. So, Laura, hey, thanks for that wonderful uh, five-star iTunes review. You know, I love it when you guys take the time. And I know it's, it's a pain in the butt, but I really do love it when you take the time to go to iTunes and leave a review. You Leave a comment, good, bad, ugly, I don't care. Just let me know that you're thinking about the podcast. And, um, you know, give us your thoughts. So really appreciate that, Laura. Uh, thank you so, so much. All right, so let's talk about University Crossings. Now, University Crossings was a deal that I um, had got under contract. So let's talk about first, how did I get it? How did I get the, how did I find the deal? And um, this is very typical how I found, I find most of my deals. It's through broker relationships, Okay. We talk about, I've talked about broker relationships a lot in this podcast, and it is true on how we operate. So broker relations is the number one way to get 
quality deals and and some people like to, to go off market and go directly to sellers. I personally don't. Um, and the reason for that is not when you do it and you go direct with a seller, they don't always want to give you all the data, all the information. And, and a lot of times when you're working with a listing broker, right, the broker has already gathered the data and uh, from the seller. Now, not always. It's not a perfect world. But in this case, uh, a deal was presented called University Crossings. And, you know, it, it appeared to be a, a decent little deal. University Crossing was a 128-bed student housing property located in Columbus, Georgia. And so if you're not familiar with Columbus, Georgia is, it's if you've ever been to Atlanta, go south and west of Atlanta, and then you're going to land into Columbus, Georgia. And so, you know, this is a student housing property. And so we've actually acquired quite a few student housing deals lately. And it's not that we're just looking for student housing. It's just they've just kind of fell in our lap. And this was the first, or actually this is the second of three pretty big student housing deals. And what we loved about University Crossings when we first looked at it, um, first of all, we looked at the numbers, okay? And what was happening with the numbers was that the current current owner was doing a, a decent job. In fact, um, he had had the property close to 90% occupancy and financially, it looked like it was pretty stable. And so right now in this market trend that we're in, we're, we're looking for very stable cash flowing properties that are we are able to pick up with not a lot of work to be done and that we can truly make some plays to either increase occupancy or raise rents a little bit. And we looked at this deal and said, we could probably do both. Just from the vacancy of, you know, 11%, right? And if we can make that 97, there's a bump right there. And if we can raise the rents just even a little bit, uh, that helps a lot. And so that's really what we our goal was when we first saw this deal. Um, a couple other things that stuck out to us um, was we love it when there's a little bit higher than average maintenance. So we, we know we have a very strict supply chain. Um, we're very... Uh, we manage our costs when we, when we spend money. We manage it very, very well. And so we really wanted to make sure that this was still that deal. And because we saw from the seller's point of view that they had um, high expenses, right? And so we saw that as a plus. Um, we also saw that they were, they were starting what's called a RUBS program, a residential utility billback system. And... Um, but they really hadn't taken that to the full breadth of what it could be, right? Meaning billing back the students for water, sewer, trash, because every, every student uses a piece of that and it's master bill. So we saw that as another opportunity um, to make some money. And then really, um, you know, just in like some other, other critical areas like um, office admin. You know, they had an office admin of $28,000 and that was really high, right? Twenty-eight. What are they spending on office admin? That's twenty-eight thousand dollars for the year, because uh, you know this is not a big student housing deal, um, where we would spend about eight thousand dollars. So like, that's a twenty thousand dollar difference, roughly. Um, and didn't and like their maintenance numbers. They were spending eighty-eight thousand dollars a year, and we had budget fifty-one thousand. 
So right out of the gate, just with those two line items, um, that's a significant amount of money that we saw that was uh, in our paradigm. Like it, it basically said it was a deal. So once, you know, we do a, so underwriting, the key to finding good deals, right, is you have to kiss a lot of frogs. I've said this a couple times on this podcast that you just got to be willing to do the work. But this was a referral from a broker and he kind of, he knew it was a deal and he knew it was something that we would be interested in. And then we confirmed and said, yes, it, it is something we, we were interested in. Let's do a site visit. Okay. That's the next step. So once we saw that our numbers were working, in fact, that was actually, that's the third step. We saw the numbers were working. We went back and then did more data analysis. So our numbers worked first. Then we started underwriting the community. And what we saw was there was a um, regional airport close, I think really close. Um, it's a four-year college, and it's a pretty good size four-year college. Um, and not only that, is that the property was located adjacent to the college, like right, right across the street. If you cross the street, you are now on college land, okay? That's important. Um, so we started, and then we did some uh, some demographic data. Like we, we like to do crime statistics. We like to do uh, medium household um, average and, and compared from the state to the zip code of the property, right? And I think that's really important because it gives you some, just some demographic, who's in the area, what's the area about, is it growing? Um, is it above average for the state? Um, what's the quality of life index, right? Um, what's your crime index? That crime index is so uh, vitally important, right? Because sometimes some areas you can be in one zip code, totally different crime than the zip code right next to it. And you need to know that. That's important. So um, we did all that data. And then now it's, now it's to the point of, okay, um, our deal is still penciling and we have to, yeah, we're like, yes, let's go do the deal. Okay. And so we go to the property and uh, we do a site visit. Now at the site visit, things can, um, you know, go from good to bad quickly. And, and a lot of times that has happened. Uh, in fact, more often than not, that happens. We go to a site visit and then we start seeing what you can't see that's not from pictures, right? You start seeing the backside of the properties. You start seeing um, the surrounding area, what's what's around the property. Even though you can do go on Google Maps, you can't see everything. And once you get on ground, sometimes um, deals tend to fall apart or they break up. And, and that's okay. Uh, but that really is. And people are like, well, Corey, why, why would you go to the property? Like, wouldn't you want to put an offer and get the offer accepted before you actually go set foot on the property. And I think that's a real big rookie mistake that I see a lot of investors make is they're not willing to go visit the dirt. Um, you have to be really willing to visit the dirt. And more importantly, visit the dirt before you actually make an offer. And why is that important? Well, I think it's important because what will happen is uh, brokers understand if you have made the time and effort and money financial commitment to come to a property or not. Um, and so 
when you do make an offer on a property and you've been on the dirt and you've sent a representative or yourself, um, now you're coming from way more uh, of a place of authority and that, that actually means something. You, you really want to prove to these brokers that you know you are part of a conglomerate or a, a, a bigger entity. You kind of want to puff your entity that it's just not just you. It's you and all your organization. And so as, your, as an organization, you don't want to, um, you know, you want to have a good rep in the community. In other words, we come visit every site that, that works because we do have an underwriting process. Now, even if it's just using my cash flow calculator, right, that's still an underwriting process. And it's really how you position it in front of the broker um, that the broker will start believing you and trusting you and really, um, um, well, he'll be paying attention. And that's 90% of the game is to get brokers to know, like, and trust you and, and, and to be part of your team. So we go to this property and um, things are going pretty well. Um, it is It was currently right on the bubble of 89 to 90% occupancy. Now, why is that important? Um, because that's important for financing, okay? Um, so as we're at our site visit, we're seeing, we're trying to kind of take a look at the numbers and we realize that we are really close and we'll probably have a really good opportunity to get permanent financing with Freddie Mac or, or, uh, uh, or uh, Fannie, Fannie Mae, right? Now, why is that important? Freddie and Fannie are, are the best um, agency loans. They're, they, in my opinion, have the best um, rules and, and procedures and uh, the way they, uh, it's the best financing you can get. Okay, especially if you're looking for a 10 or 15 year note, they give you a way to uh, be able to get a second mortgage. Um, they allow you to cash out certain ways and um, apply what's called a supplemental loan. And there's lots of ways to take out and you lock in rates for a pretty good long time, for a pretty good long period of time, and usually have what's called a step down. And what a step down is, is like the fee um, if you want to get out of the loan. Okay, so with most loans, like a CMBS loan, let's say you did a 10-year note and you wanted to sell it in year five. Well, you would have to pay five years left of all the interest that would be in that note. You'd have to pay it up front to cash out of that commercial note. That's like highway robbery. So um, with Freddie and Fannie, they have these step downs where it'll go 5%, you know, 7%, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 1, 1. And then it's, there's only a 1% exit fee if you sell. Well, that's a hell of a lot better than a four or $500,000 fee um, just for the interest of the property. So that, that made a lot of sense. So we're, we're looking at Freddie and Fannie. And um, at the site visit, we really didn't find anything majorly wrong. In fact, I mean, we came back from the site visit pretty pleased. In fact, knowing knowing what we know, what knowing that we are good, at feeling, really fixing two things. One is deferred maintenance, and the other one was filling occupancy. We're really good at finding occupancy. So we looked at this property, and we said, gosh, um, two of the buildings are super new, like built in 2006, and then one building is super old. And so um, 
our, our thought process is, listen, we don't really need to do too much on the newer buildings because they're, they're actually really, really good shape. The play here for this property was to uh, update the old property, update the interiors of the old property. That's really all that needs to be done to really be able to, because there's a tenant base that wants to rent our property. So we're like, boom, that makes sense. That's easy. Um, and then can we do it? And how much does it cost? And so that was really what the site visit was trying to determine is, you know, are we, what, what is our actual CapEx budget? And we do a CapEx budget per door. So you want to make sure that you're doing a per door look at CapEx, okay? So um, we determined that, and I think, let me just look. I'm going to do a little research here into my model. Um, I believe we determined it was needed, yep, 224000 bucks. So we underwrote the deal. We said, hey, listen, this property needs roughly $3,500 per door of CapEx. That's rehab money, by the way, to fix up this project and to make the, basically the old building look new and fresh. So that's, all right, so now we have a game plan. And so now um, we, we, we come back from the site visit. Um, now it's time to try to win the bid. Now, there's a call for offers on the property. And that is typically the case on a lot of deals that we buy. It is open market, and there's more than one buying group looking at it. And so this is one of, this has been really our, um, how we tend to get deals more often than not is the way we stack our deals and leverage our deals to the broker. So when we submit an offer, we have an LOI packet, letter of intent packet, and what's in that packet is a couple things. A is our LOI, and it's very it's just a two-page LOI. It's not very complicated language. Okay, we save that for the purchase and sell agreement, but the LOI needs to be very clear and cut and not long, right? It can't be that intimidating. And so in our LOI, we have our standard Here's all the items that we are requesting in due diligence. Here's the price. Here's, and we usually always do a 45 day or a, a 30 business day, which is actually 45 calendar days, 40 or 30 business days uh, inspection period, and a 30 business day um, close. Meaning, you know, once you go through your inspection, you have another, so that's 90 days. And then, um, now, here's what we don't put in that LOI, is our extension. We, now, we, we save that for the purchase and sell agreement. So in the purchase and sell agreement, we will then include a provision for usually around $20,000, $25,000 that we can extend the contract for a certain amount of money. And another usually it's another 30 calendar days. So now that puts us to 120 calendar days. That's that's a pretty good amount of time. That's typically three to four months um, of time to like buy the property. And that that actually is a lot. That is a, a whole lot. And it, and it works, right? So, but, so there's the LOI and all the stuff that we put in there. Then we put our, our, uh, our management credibility kit, right? So whatever management company you're using, usually a management company will have a, 
uh, their credibility kit, or basically who they are, what they've done, how many properties they've managed, basically saying, here is my management company. I already have it. I'm not looking for it. I have all my ducks in a row, right? Then your credibility kit. You need to prove what you've done. And then a proof of funds, right? And so if you don't have a proof of funds, um, go get a proof of funds. And you need to submit the proof of funds with everything. So that's, that's a complete packet. But what's more important is how you ask. Okay, now we will typically not submit our LOI until the day of um, that it's due. In other words, so if it was due on a Friday, we're going to call the broker Friday morning and listen up, pay attention, because here's here comes some sugar, is you're going to ask for pricing guidance. Now, what is pricing guidance? Okay, well, it's what you're going to ask the broker when you're face-to-face with them saying, hey, listen, uh, I really like this deal. Now, what you're asking for guidance on this one, because there's just, it's just, it's just a call for offers. And what you're really trying to do is get invited to the best and final. Best and final is like there's usually two rounds in a commercial deal. You have call for offers and then best and final. And so our conversation goes like this to the broker. Hey, John, listen, we really like this deal and we want to make sure that we get invited to the best and final round. Okay, our uh, price will be probably a little lower than expected, but we have some dry powder and really we just want to, you know, our history and everything that we've done, we want to be invited to your best and final round. And so that's really how we, we play it. And we're looking for some pricing guidance. You know, what is it going to take to at least get into the best and final round? Okay, we didn't ask them for a number. We just asked them for some guidance. And typically, you might have to play some hot or cold or a couple little things like that to kind of get the broker to buy into what you're doing. He's going to have a fiduciary, and he's not going to give you the number, but he can let you know if you're close. And that's all you need to do is be close because you're going to get invited to the best and final round. So typically what happens, and what happened in this deal is that um, after we submitted our whole packet, just the way I explained it, um, the broker receives it, says, thanks a lot. We wait a whole week, and then finally we get the call. Mr. Peterson, right? You have been invited to the best and final round. And usually they give a list of all this other crap they want to be filled out. Some of it we fill out, some of it we don't, right? Um, we try not to be intimidated by brokers and sending a bunch of useless information. We usually like to say, here's our track record. Here's what we've done. Um, we're not going to give this data, right? But here's, you know, we're a good buyer. We've bought before um, and kind of really just list our track record. So then usually after the, um, you know, call for offers, then there's, once you get invited to best and final, they're going to set a best and final date. In other words, your new offers are due next Friday, right? Best and final. So now what do you think we do here? Okay. 
On that day, again, the day that it's due, we're calling the broker. Now, this one is kind of an art form. How hard do you press the broker to get the price that you need to do, that you need to have to win? And the whole time that we're communicating with the broker, okay, we're trying to figure out what is the hot point of the seller. Is it price or is it surety of close? Write that down, everybody, in your head. Surety of close. Surety of close is a big deal. Lots of deals get under contract, not all of them close. Surety of close, if you can uh, demonstrate the ability to close, if you have a track record of closing deals that you put under contract, man, you are going to have a pretty good time in getting a deal done, right? That's just the way it is. And so it's important to know where your leverage is. So again, you're going to call the, you know, you're calling the broker and you're asking them for pricing guidance and really, you know, what's the hot buttons and trying to get him to, to nail you down a price. Um, so you're going to be competitive. You just want to be, and the way I like to say is, listen, we want to be competitive. Where do you think the property is going to trade? What's a competitive price? Now they won't always give it. Okay. So sometimes you just got to go on what you think is your best price and you put it forward, and usually what we'll do, and what we did in this deal, is we increased our offer by a couple hundred thousand dollars, and then we also increased our earnest money by an extra hundred thousand dollars. So we initially put up a hundred thousand dollars earnest money, and then I put an additional hundred thousand dollars of earnest money in the deal. Well, that showed that we're serious, right? And it also showed that we, I know we, we come up in our price a little bit. And typically that's what we'll do most of the time is, is leave two or $300,000 shy of what we really want to offer. So we can just firm that offer up and then have what we call is more of our surety of close, which is our bigger biggest lever that we offer is that, hey, listen, when Corey goes under contract, uh, typically Corey closes unless it is something that is really... Um, been not disclosed in the deal and we find something that's a deal killer, right? If we don't find that, then we typically close all the time, right? And so that's that's really the language that we use and it, it's worked really well for us. So um, so we submit our, 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 our deal, we, we submitted our price for, you look at my uh, numbers, uh, we submitted it for five, well, so here's the thing. The asking price on this property was $5.5 million. That was the asking price. Okay. Now, the offer that won the deal was $5,060,000. How cool is that? Asking price, $5.5 million. Offer price, the price that we contracted under, $5,060,000. Okay. And so we initially put an offer at 4.8. So there we go. That's that's exactly what we did, and 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 it worked out beautifully. And so now we get um, a property under contract. Well, no, we have an accepted LOI. And now here's where it gets a little crazy. Okay, is that the seller? agrees, but just gives us a, an agreeable uh, agreement um, via an email. 
which is really not good. I mean, we want them to sign our LOI, our letter of intent. And the reason we think that's very, very important is if it's not signed, then it's really not saying that they agree to everything. And so, because we are now going to go, and we, we in, in our LOI language, says that the buyer is responsible for preparing a contract. Why? Because we have legal contracts that are built for us, not for the seller, but built for us. And so that's an important uh, process in um, making sure that you get a deal done. But the seller didn't sign our LOI. And so we spent a week, kind of a week, going through and trying to say, okay, well, it's great that you've accepted it, but sign our LOI so we can go to purchase and sales contract. Purchase and sales contract. Purchase and sales contract. And they don't submit. So, And then like almost a week and a half later, the broker or the seller decides to submit their uh, contract to us. Okay. Now this is, now this happens and sometimes it doesn't happen. We try to always mitigate it to where we have our, uh, I'm sorry about the dogs barking in the background. I'm doing it live here in Hawaii. So there's dogs and they're barking. <laughs> so the seller then goes ahead and submits their PSA or purchase and sales contract. And it's not ours. And this is where things in, in a way kind of like, you know, it, it starts to be red flags for us because typically what happens is now the seller is going to try to dictate different language. And, and it always happens this way. If a seller submits a contract, it, they never abide by our like. So when we write a contract, we really try to stick exactly with our verbiage and our wordage wording from our PSA except for a couple items, right? And one of the things that we always add in our purchase and sales contract is again that 30-day extension for a, a price. And typically that's not a big deal. And in this case, it wasn't a big deal to get it added, but what they didn't want to add was all our language in all the things that we requested in our due diligence, meaning we wanted bank statements. We wanted tax records. We wanted everything that it takes to buy a property because we needed those items. We just flat out need them, okay? And um, it's part of our process. And if we don't have it, how can we underwrite properly? And so they wanted to leave out a lot of the items. And we just, we we said no. And so what took, what, what normally takes about two weeks, took about a month, a month and a half for uh, lawyers to get together and redline and finally agree on a document that both the seller and the buyer would accept and sign. Now, that is, um, I call it par for the course. It seems to happen more often than not. Um, and um, it's a pain in the butt sometimes when it goes this way. But, you know, generally sellers are wanting to sell and we're saying we're a buyer that wants to buy. And if you have those two things going on, um, more often than not, you can find a way to agree. And that's what we did is we found a way to agree. And so I think this is a really good stopping uh, spot for today, for today's uh, uh, segment. So I'm going to ask and invite you to come in to listen to it tomorrow or our next week. 
uh, to learn more about what happened on this deal as on our road to purchase, right? Because we got our contract signed and then we had things that went wrong. And these are, these are very typical and you're going to want to know what went wrong and what went right and how we negotiated it and how we um, just kind of managed the whole process. And then um, the last segment that we're going to do is we're actually going to bring my other partners, uh, Sean Terry and Corey Boatwright, into this and um, get their take because they were in the deal with me from the beginning. And uh, it'll be interesting to hear their uh, how uh, their the commentary of this deal and um, and how it played out in their eyes because um, you know they were they're privy to a lot of the back and forth. Not every piece of it because I was the one running running it from the, the get go, but um, but they had really they they got to see what happens in a deal. And they're like, is this typical? Does this usually go on? How come you can't leverage this? How come you can't leverage that? And um, and the goal was just to get to closing. So. Uh, I think you guys are going to be in a, have a lot of fun with this series. So tune in next week to listen about our University Crossings case study, um, episode number two for the UVC uh, case study. All right, thanks. And as always, guys, listen. Uh, you know me. I I'm in here in Hawaii. Hopefully, uh, you're you're having a good time seeing the background. It is sunsets and palm trees. Um, you know this trip has been an amazing trip. And here's why it's important is um, I made it a, a promise to myself that I would never let money uh, corrupt me or, or try to change me. Now, money can change you, by the way. Uh, and, and, and you've got to be grounded in what you and, and learn to say no a lot. It's not always fun, but you got to say no a lot. But um, once you overcome your, your need for money, in other words, when you have all your basic needs met, um, a new thing kind of comes in and it says, well, what drives you, Corey? What what really drives you? And so it's not money anymore. Now, I love to play the game of real estate and I, I really enjoy it. I have a lot of fun doing what I do. But money doesn't necessarily drive me as much anymore. What does drive me, though, is what we did here in Hawaii. And I, and I, I have a new um, slogan. I got it from Sean McCloskey and I just love it. And it's he, one day he was like, Corey, you want to be the supplier of fun. And that is so true. I wanted to be the supplier. I want to give people experiences. And so uh, on this trip, I uh, was able to bring and, and pay for this house um, for all my neighbors to come down. My, my neighbors have uh, paid for their own flights. But I said, guys, if you will pay for your flights, I will pay for the whole um, the house and everything in it, right? So we can have a nice place to stay right on the beach. And we can spend one week together and just have a lot of fun. And that is exactly what we've done. We have had an amazing time. Um, and this is, for them, every one of my neighbors, it is their very first time on uh, in Hawaii, and more importantly, Kauai, the Garden Island. And we have just been giving them uh, every day a new experience. And it has been so fun to watch the joy. And... Um, to, to, to show them what I know to be true, that this place is magical, right? Hawaii is a very, very magical place for me. It's one of the few places where I, I really go and I try to uncharge, or recharge, uncharge. <laughs> I try not to work. Um, but I love doing my podcast here because I just, I get so jazzed. I, I, I think about um, the journey that I've taken and that, you know, I'm, I'm actually two houses away from Bruce's house. Now, I'm going to own Bruce's house in the next couple of years. 
I'm just saying that. I've said it out loud a couple times, but I'm, I'm telling you right now, we have a plan to own Bruce Wayne's house um, in, in, in Anahola in uh, Hawaii. And I think it'll, A, because I want to, it'll complete my story and make me feel, um, you know, it's a neat road. And to, to have that, uh, but more importantly, why, am I wanna, why do I want to buy a house in Hawaii? So one is I, I truly believe that I want to be able to be the supplier of fun. And um, I feel like I can VRBO it uh, to give other people experiences and, you know, hire the right management company. I know it'll already be expensive, right? But I'm okay with the expense of it. Um, and But we still come to Hawaii a lot. And we go to different places, and that's a lot of fun, too. Um, but I'm, I'm going to buy a house in Hawaii because I think Shelly and I want to, when our kids, our kids about have four more years left until they get out of college and out on their own. Now, that probably can work for me, hopefully, but if not, it's okay. Um, but we're going to spend uh, the four months of hell in Arizona. We're going to spend it in here in Hawaii. That's the plan. So anyways, uh, enough about me. Listen, uh, guys, there's a testament that, you know, 17 years ago, two houses away, I saw something that was so real to me. Bruce had the two things that I think most of us are longing for, which is time and money. Most of us have one. And very, very few of us have both. And my challenge to you today is to tell yourself today that you are going to be in pursuit of time and money. And in my opinion, the best place to get time and money is in commercial real estate. It is through apartments. And uh, I've grown uh, exponentially wealthy. Um, I have money coming in time and time every month for work that I did once. And it's a magical thing. It's a magical thing. When you cash flow, cash flow is the new sexy. I promise you that. Okay. <laughs> it is the new sexy. And, you know, I think about my life of like being a car salesman and, and all the, all the tr trials and tribulations and everything that I had to do um, and what focus it took. And I have been extremely focused on my goal. Now, it was the first goal was just real estate. But in 2011, that's when it changed. I knew that it was multifamily. I knew that it was cash flow. And so I've been on a relentless pursuit of that. Here I am living out my dream. And my challenge to you is, now, it didn't happen overnight, by the way. It didn't happen overnight. It took me from 2011 to 2017, truly, 17, 2017. In the summer of 2017, when I sold my property and bought my next property, right, and I had like $3 million of my money in the next deal, that's when I was truly set free. So it took roughly five years of me watering the dream with one property. Now, I, I bought three or four other properties in the process, um, and I still own them. But it's that one that went all the way to fruition that set me free. So truly you're one deal away from creating legacy wealth. So my challenge to you is to not be idle, to claim it right now that you're gonna be successful in commercial real estate. Because I know if you put it in your mind, you start feeding that dream and you, th you, you think about it, you meditate on it, and you start to believe it. When you believe it, you can achieve it. 
because your paradise is possible.